Indian women socialized to not fight domestic violence? And why is consensual sexual activity between teens criminalized? Hi, I'm Aditi, and you're listening to the In Perspective podcast, where academics reveal little-known facts about Indian history, society, and culture. In this episode, we are taking you back to a conversation from July 2020, when we spoke to legal activist Prita Jha. You've written about uh, how the the PWDA, the Protection of Women from Domestic Violence Act, um, is a groundbreaking piece of legislation. Can you talk a little bit about um, sort of the legal and social activism uh, that went into passing this law and some of the public debate uh, that went on around it as well? Yeah, in India, I think it spanned around 10 years, uh, the uh, background to this legislation and feminists demanding it, working for it, you know, uh, trying to influence policymakers, uh, legislation makers. But it's really part of a wider global movement uh, of uh, uh, changing the criminal justice system to include voices of victims and particularly women. So over the last 30 years worldwide there has been a lot of uh, movement in trying to look take into voices of victims and experiences of victims particularly when we're dealing uh, with uh, law so you know there have been of course general uh, laws for assault and rape and um, 498a which dealt with dowry harassment was there before but these were all criminal offenses and Domestic violence happens in an intimate setting. So the need always is to have civil proceedings because many times women don't want to send their intimate partner or husbands to jail. What they really want is protection from the violence and also actually recognition of domestic violence in the private realm by this law. And worldwide, this was a very difficult thing. I I worked on this for many years in England. So, you know, this idea that, you know, it's a private issue. You don't allow the law into the private realm. You know, the Englishman's home is, is castle. That kind of idea is there everywhere that this is an area where men have control and you cannot bring the law into this domain. And the need for the law uh, is, of course, because it's such a prevalent thing, we started getting research. It's something that got identified as an issue worldwide, uh, international movements, conventions, Beijing meetings, uh, everything that happened uh, in the international context to work, you know, ask the world to take this as a very serious issue. As we know, one in three women suffer domestic violence. So the need for legislation was then an international requirement. Uh, So and and a lot of uh, feminist movement and women's movement in India campaigned in many cities. But I have to say that it is largely something that remains a urban thing rather than a rural uh, movement and practice, which is where I feel that we need to move to because the situation in the rural side is still requires a lot of attention, not just in terms of the activism, uh, which is happening. Uh, you know, there are rural legal activists, but the whole operation of the law perhaps is not, you know, in, in a large part is not as well or as good as it is in the urban realm. So I think there's a lot of, and given that vast majority of Indian women live in the rural setting, uh, I feel there's a big gap. There's a lot more work required to be done uh, to ensure that these acts are known, people are aware of this law, and that it's being used. 
And one of the best things about this law, and as I said, it's kind of a victim-centered law, which looks at, it's not just something, a legislation that comes on the statute book, but there's a lot of thought has gone into thinking, how do you implement this legislation? So the idea of counselors, you know, to counsel women, recognizing that women go through a trauma when they're suffering domestic violence and they need counseling, shelters, safe spaces where they can go to. Uh, it's in the law, protection officers, somebody who's supposed to help a woman throughout the process from beginning to end, to realize that the legal aid system probably doesn't work and a lot of women can't afford uh, justice. But problem remains and has been, and uh, you know, Lois Collective, uh, Indra Jai Singh and Lois Collective have done an enormous amount of work on this, uh, not over there. They used to do a report, a monitoring and evaluation report of this law, which was great because none of the other laws have had that attention. And all of our laws on women actually require that evaluation. But this evaluation showed a lot of gaps. You know, there were not gender budgets. So what's the point of making this law when you don't have enough protection officers, you don't have enough counselors, you know, you don't have shelters which are safe spaces. So these are the things that, that we have been working on. Uh, my organization, Peace and Equality Cell, uh, has been involved in trying to implement the infrastructure. So I think it was about five years ago, we found that a, when a woman goes to register a complaint to a protection officer, the protection officer is telling her, come back in two months. Two months, you're supposed to sit with domestic violence for two months. The law says it should happen in two to three, four days. So this woman uh, contacted the media. It was published in the newspaper. And luckily, it was taken up by a judge, Suomoto, who wrote a letter to the judiciary. And then the judiciary took it up themselves and passed orders on implementation of the act, particularly saying the state had to have a protection officer in each district. But even after the order, it took a while for that setup to come into place. And even now, uh, I again get complaints saying, you know, there's one protection officer in Ahmedabad, which gets far more cases than some of the rural districts and small districts. So the law and the judgment in case of Gujarat High Court said that they needed to do an analysis of how many cases are happening and have protection officers as per the requirement. That's not happening in most places. I think Maharashtra has gone through a similar process and a lot of uh, protection officers were ordered. But there are still places where there are no protection officers. So this law is as good as useless because there's nobody that women can go to. And protection officers, the other thing, and you know, there are government officers who have to have that support. Support. Uh, it was found that they didn't have technical support. At times, they were telling women to go into their own typing or go into their, you know, see a lawyer to get what they wanted written and then come to them because they didn't have that technical support. They didn't have the private space for counseling, you know, in, in an office. So all those things are very essential. You know, these little things make all the difference in terms of them being able to support people. In the case of Ahmedabad, I just think they've got too many cases. They're supposed to be everywhere. They have to go to court. They have to support. They're supposed to go and speak to respondents. They're supposed to do the service. They just do not have the time to do all of this in the number of cases that there are. This remains a big problem. If you get competent uh, protection officers, half of your job is done in a domestic violence case. But competence is difficult if you have cases which are well beyond your 
you know, capacity in terms of the time that you have. So these are things that, you know, we keep trying to work and support. But it's very difficult for people who have government jobs to do this because they can raise their voices, but they raise their voices too many times, they lose their job. So that's that's a difficulty. Once you have a government job for you to actively change things from within is not always so easy. So I'm curious about, you mentioned the the sort of divide between rural, and you see that, that um women are not being able to access some of the protections of the law um, in rural India. Do you see the difference between urban and rural as being more of an issue of um, a lack of awareness? I think there is a lack of awareness as well because there are a lot more NGOs organizations, civil society organizations like ours in the urban settings compared to the rural settings. Uh, and also, I think uh, culture and family structures, uh, there's not that diversity in the rural uh, setting uh, as much as there is in the urban setting. So, you know, things are changing more. It, it's still, you know, domestic violence is prevalent in the urban setting also. Uh, but uh, I think the rural setting, the awareness and access to the infrastructure is, uh, you know, not as good as it is in the urban settings generally. That's a general statement. Yeah. Um, so when it comes to this law on domestic violence in India, one of the other things you've spoken about is the, the gap between the sort of progressive um, underpinnings and the nature of the law and the judiciary's understanding and application of it, on the other hand. Um, what are some of the constraints with um, the judiciary's application of the law? Well, patriarchy. It's a very, very, you know, we are brought up in that society. Judges don't live on the moon. They've also been brought up in that society uh, where they think the, you know, man should be the head of the the household has control. The idea of, an, in, in fact, I was thinking and a ridiculous idea, but I want to do a PIL on how many people in involved as advocates, judges, are they asked about gender equality? It's part of the constitution. They swear to that constitution. But I would say that 80% of them would disqualify if you actually tested them on their understanding of gender equality. Because they don't they don't believe in it. You know, you, you it, that that's the problem. That's the central problem we face in India. Our constitution is not in line with the social realities, right, or the historical realities. Gender equality is not something that, you know, people still will think a woman should do this. So I, even I have had a case in which, you know, a judge has said to a woman, you know, you, you got a few slaps, you don't come to court for that, you know. And generally, there is an idea that uh, women should stay in unhappy domestic violence marriages uh, to maintain the family structure. It's bad women who, you know, go out and try to change this uh, structure. And um, recently we had a consultation of National Commission of Women in uh, Gujarat. And I was challenging, you know, there is a, I think in our Indian society, there's such a focus on marriage and family and marriage is the purpose of life almost. And if you begin, you know, when, when we know that one in three marriages or domestic violence is happening in these marriages, we need to question whether, you know, girls should be brought up with just one idea, which is their life is about marriage. And I see that in rural settings a lot, you know, and I think there's been research on child marriage that's showing that, that your role model, your motivation, your desire to do something else in life is not there. So I think that requires more work. Um, 
on, on that issue because uh, domestic violence and then is something that you're you know taught to accept acquiesce and uh, live with so there is this uh, notion um, in public discourse about the dowry law being sort of unfair right and that it can be misused by women to file these false cases um, against husbands or in-laws is there any research or data at all to, to back this notion and where where does it come from? Um, and, and are there problems with how we sort of legally define what a false case is? It's a very common conception. Everywhere you go, lawyers, judges, people talk about false cases. And now there's a Supreme Court judgment, in fact, Arnesh Kumar, which tried to uh, change the situation where, you know, men were not getting bail and whole families were being uh, caught by this uh, 498 legislation. Um, you know, I remember trying to challenge this idea at National Judicial Academy and I was almost thrown out. There was like almost a, a, you know, thing like, why have you got her as a resource person? And I had to be rescued by a Supreme Court judge who um, kind of said, oh, no, you know, you don't need to worry because there's this Supreme Court judgment of Arnesh Kumar who, you know, we know the realities and that's why that judgment is there. But nobody, and this is what I'm saying, nobody has defined what a false case is. And when I looked for research, the only research that exists is a small based research done. Uh, yeah, it was an organization in Delhi. And what they found was that 7% of cases are false of, you know, when they did this research, but false as determined by the police. I would actually say, yes, 7% of cases well, are probably false because there's, you know, there's a influence, corruption, all these things are there in the Indian system. But I would ask anybody to go and look at any crime, whether it's murder, looting, uh, writing, whatever it is, and if they do the research, they'll probably find that 7% of cases are false, as in, you know, reason of uh, somebody powerful has entrapped somebody or the police have been corrupt or something. There is some reason why they're false. But what does a false case mean is never been questioned. And I've tried to do some research on this. Unfortunately, so far, uh, it's not happened. Uh, uh, because how do we define false is a question which is, is it that violence has taken place but not dowry harassment and it is being framed as dowry harassment, right? The research that was done by Lawyers Collective on domestic violence judgments, they uh, analyzed thousands of judgments and what they found was the main reason for women filing domestic violence was dowry harassment. What is a false case? Is a false case that no violence has happened? Because I, to date, do not have a single case in which a woman has come to me with no violence. I mean, I did have a case in which it seemed to me like a gay guy had been married to a woman and he was not sleeping with her and she wanted to do a 498A or whatever. And I disagreed with that because, you know, I could sort of had a feeling what, what it was because there's some kind of violence that's happened to him also. So, yeah. You know, there may be cases like that, but that's still a kind of abuse, emotional abuse. He should have told her. And I told her, look, you know, I would not do a 498A, but that's the problem in India. She would have gone to another lawyer who would do 498A for her, right? And so then those, then is that the fault of the victim or the person who actually is a victim of something uh, being misadvised by lawyers? And sometimes, you know, it's a strategy thing when a, a domestic violence case doesn't work, a man is not coming to the table is not negotiating, is not doing something, then, you know, as a strategy, uh, you may advise a client that, you know, do this case as well because you have the grounds to.
So to the extent that there are false cases, I blame lawyers. I would say to my client, as I did in this case, no, I, you know, it's not, I, I won't do a 498 case where that's not what I think is happening here, right? But sadly, I would say that that's not the stance taken by the majority of uh, lawyers. They would say, okay, you know, we'll say this. and put. I'm not saying that all lawyers are dishonest and all lawyers do this. Uh, but I think to the extent that people, lawyers should be ethical and refusing to file cases which are not true, I think that happens hell of a lot. And that's a problem. So false cases are not the problem. Violence, which is one type of violence, is being made to be a 498A. And how much of that, we don't know, because again, there's no research. So uh, let's turn to some of your work with child sexual abuse. Um, you've worked extensively on the ground with over 150 uh, cases of child sexual abuse. And one of the issues that you've raised is this lack of understanding of secondary trauma and the re-victimization of children. Can you, first of all, just explain what secondary trauma is, um, but then talk about the ways where um, law enforcement is sort of coming up short in accounting for this problem and perhaps maybe um, how law enforcement can improve its protocols in this regard to make sure that this doesn't happen. So uh, secondary victimization is, is, is the idea that, you know, when I lose control over my body and I get raped or I am sexually abused, I suffer, you know, I become a victim at that point. But then if I'm going through the legal system and I'm being asked the same questions 25 times insensitively by a lot of people, there's, you know, I go to the police, I go to the counselor, I go to the court, and I am not getting a sympathetic, sensitive hearing, basically. And my needs as a child in child sexual abuse cases are not being met. So, uh, at the moment, we have a very good law which has, you know, looked at these issues. And at each, it's a very child-friendly law in theory, again, which has got at every stage that the child is the focus of the uh, uh, law and that we have to look at the best interest of the child. There's a whole infrastructure, again, developed under this law. At district level, there's supposed to be a district child protection unit, there are counsellors. There's supposed to be a support person who holds the child's hand throughout the system. Unfortunately, if you go and do research on support persons, you'll find most of the places in India, these support persons don't exist. We uh, try to get this, this feature implemented in Gujarat and a hundred support persons have been notified in Gujarat. Unfortunately, they're all existing government officers who already have another job. And, you know, they also have to do this. Uh, when I did a training on support persons and I was telling them, you have to do this, this and this, one of them quite honestly said, ma'am, if I do what you're supposed to do, I'll never get home and my other job. That, that's the reality, right? Uh, and so this is the thing that, you know, the biggest problem we face in India now is not the law. Our laws are as standard as they come anywhere now in the world. Biggest problem is implementation and resources and commitment to ensuring that each of these things uh, are as they're supposed to be. And of course, the other big thing, of course, is the societal structure. You know, a majority of child sexual abuse cases never get to court, never get to the police station because of issue of izzat and honor that, especially in the rural sector, I've had a case where, where a mother committed suicide because her daughter was in a child sexual abuse cases. I felt she had two young children. I felt quite angry as a mother with her hotly. And I was like, how can you do this? But who do I blame? I blame this survivor or I blame that society, which has brought her up to think that the only option she has is to commit suicide in a situation of her 15 year old, you know, 
being involved in a child sexual abuse case. So for me, the enemy is the silence and the izzat culture that I raise. And I'm surprised that even in the NGO sector, I've raised these in issues and some male activists have said, uh, I'll have to say this in Hindi, izzat to lutti hai. That when somebody gets raped, their honor is robbed. So if they believe this after years of working on the ground on gender equality and gender justice, I just feel hopeless. How am I going to change society if, you know? So I feel there's a lot of work to be done with men becoming part of these movements. There are uh, sympathetic and men who do believe in gender equality, but I don't think they're joining the struggle and they're not part of trying to change this society. And I really feel it's time for them to come on board. The, Struggle for gender justice is not just for women. It is a struggle for justice and equality. So let's talk a bit about um, the, the Protection of uh, Children from Sexual Offenses Act and one of the sort of uh, drawbacks or downsides of it in the sense that it criminalizes adolescent sexuality. Um, can you uh, expand a little bit about some of the problems with criminalizing consensual uh, sexual activity among adolescents? Um, and how do we address this? The reality to begin with is that the research so far done shows that every one in three cases, which is a large number of cases. So we're saying three cases of child sexual abuse are registered. One is one of these cases where you have 13 year old, 14 year old, 15, 16 year old who has run away consensually with somebody and whoever, and it's not always uh, that they've run away with, you know, so we also have these debates within our teams, you know, what if the person who they've run away with is 40 compared to that person who they've run away with is 21, you know, there's no grading of that. So if the parents disagree with the love uh, situation, they will register a case of kidnapping, rape, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, that, you know, I've had a case in which uh, somebody, you know, somebody has been imprisoned for 10 years because of, you know, the law has no discretion. That's the way in which the law was very strict, because uh, in 1986, we had a, a case in which a judge was saying that woman, a girl of nine year old was of bad character. So the law has taken the discretion out of the judge's hands, which you see, I don't think I think it's deeply problematic because law is so black and white and society is so complex and you have to train and trust your judges and give them that discretion. I don't agree with taking that discretion out of the hands of the judges because in these kinds of cases and in other countries, they have the discretion. So, and recently uh, they're trying, there was this consultation going on on increasing the age of child marriage to 21. Then we have huge problems in POXO when it was ranged from 16 to 18. We were already having this problem, even when it was 16, because, you know, child marriage is common in the rural settings. So women are brought up to have a name of life that, you know, they'll get married and that's the life, you know, target reached. So uh, love and romantic and all of those things and getting ready for relationship is all, you know, one of the major things that they're doing. Um, so child marriage uh, was happening even before and it is still happening right now you know it, it's incre i mean there's less child marriages happening now because government is targeting education and awareness uh, stuff around that so the problem is that there's no you know one of the the only thing i've heard so far is that we should uh, uh, make children aware that they're committing these laws i agree some children when they know they're going to be imprisoned may not 
commit these offenses. Well, it's like adolescent sexuality, it's hormones and all of that. Um, and just like people knowing, you know, that they're going to be committing offenses will stop them. And of course, it's uh, boys and boy and girl run away. It's the boy who's often imprisoned um, uh, and the girl is forced almost. I have many cases which I find really difficult where the parents have done habeas corpus and they're so grateful to me that, you know, they found their daughter. Though when I meet the daughter, they'll, they'll, she'll say, oh, you know, I was made to run away. When I speak to her on her own, she'll say, actually, I want to marry him if they let me. So, and there's no separate legal representation for children. So, you know, me as a lawyer, I'm in a very difficult situation. Uh, us as a legal team are in a very difficult situation where we represent the views of the parents who are in direct conflict with the views and needs and wishes of the child. And a very important thing that I would actually really want people to hear on this point, which I don't think a lot of children know, is that they can refuse the medical examination if they're over 12. But this is not told to them. So when they go, their parents take them to the police station and then they go to hospital. They have a medical examination which proves there's been some sexual activity, but they have the right to not consent to that medical examination, but they don't know. They don't have legal advice separately to tell them because they don't want the person that their parents have, are registering a case against and criminalizing to go to jail. And it's really, I mean, you know, it's like, how is it in the best interest of a child who's in love with somebody to deal with the fact that that person is in jail, is going to be incarcerated, is coming to court? I see these children in such distressed situations and I'm worried. Um, some of, sometimes we, you know, we decided we are not going to take these cases, but sometimes we're taking these cases just to make sure that the girls are safe at home. And that, you know, that we tell the parents that, you know, we're supporting the case, but you don't do, you know, you don't treat your child badly because they're called, you know, they're called prostitutes, this, that, and the other, because that's how the society sees this thing. So is it fair to say that the law, which was likely intended to address child sexual abuse in a certain context, is now in these sort of consensual adolescent relationships actually being used by the parents of girls in some instances to sort of shield them or protect them or protect their honor in some way? Totally, totally. Yeah. It's the agency and hierarchy of parents. But the problem with changing the law, you know, and we've had this conversation as to why, because there's also mandatory reporting under Fox. So if I know somebody has committed child sexual abuse, as per the law, I'm supposed to go and report it to the police station. Otherwise, I'm committing an offense. That's how strong it is. Apart from lawyers who have legal privilege, counselors and everybody else is supposed to go and report it. A problem is that when you get, you know, the whole sex tourist industry and there were cases in which the parents were uh, making their girls uh, do uh, sexual acts. Um, so a lot's been written in India and all around the world about domestic violence um, under lockdown. And we know that there are all sorts of connections between economic and social and emotional distress and um, increases in domestic violence. So given sort of the totally unprecedented nature of this pandemic and the circumstances that it's creating within homes, do we have the sort of legal frameworks and protections in place to address 
the way that domestic violence is specifically playing out right now? Um, and do we need other interventions? What what else can we do? Well, well, I mean, we have the law in that, you know, within the 181, for example, the helpline service is working and it's reaching women. Uh, I contacted the one in Gujarat and they said, actually, they're getting a lot more neighbor disputes where, you know, people are thinking that, you know, that somebody's bringing corona in uh, rather than domestic violence uh, situations that uh, people are talking about definitely uh definitely the legal framework's there but the legal framework is not working right because courts are shut uh you can go to the police station you can file a case but uh, the cases are not being court is shut cases are not being heard it's the situations where for example there's a supreme court judgment saying men you know everybody should get bail because of the problems in prison I had a client whose husband is, it's a boxer case, her husband is in jail. She was very worried about him getting bail and coming home. So luckily so far that hasn't happened. So it's like the, uh, you know, uh, you kind of try to be, try to do justice and think about Corona in one situation, but then it has a, you know, knock on effect on other situations that perhaps, you know, we also have to think about um, in, in this thing. So support counseling, but I think it's just very difficult with the uh, Corona situation because, you know, uh, not everybody has, you know, if you've got a phone, perhaps you could receive counseling on Zoom or internet. But again, with the rural uh, situation and women not having that kind of privacy, I think it's the privacy and confidentiality required, you know, for women to receive the help that they would get if they could step out of their house and go and see somebody. Yeah, this is I mean, this is the big challenge, actually, that we've been hearing about as we've been reporting on the domestic violence situation as well, is that so many activists are really trying to make sure that all of their support systems are more known to people, but without the ability to make a phone call in private, as you said, it just complicates the whole system. That's the note we ended our conversation with Prita on. This episode gave us some interesting insight into the framework behind the legislature that seeks to protect women and children. We hope it did the same for you. We release a new episode of the In Perspective podcast every Monday, so be sure to tune in. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.